here okay. now. Yes, we're part of the public record now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> unless we, oh, unless no. we, we hate the way this sounds. In yeah, which case and then away and start over. Edit it out, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm but, not saying any f bombs. That's that's not. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. She has a dignified job. She can't do that. So, <laughs> so, so do we. I mean, we do. Yeah. We're, we're upstanding members of, of society. Listen, if you're an Asian lady and you're not an optometrist or a dentist right now, then I, I do not I do not qualify as having like a real job, according to my parents. Well, you're like switching burgers in the humanity. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. Practically. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Sociology is not a humanity, though. <laughs> it's a social science. Social science. Yeah. Historians are in the humanities. Well, but you're white and you're a dude, and so you already have built-in sort of like status, and so yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's respectable. It's respectable for you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Can you hear the disappointment in my voice? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To set set it up, uh, my parents came over really early in 1965. Um, so that was, I would say that 10 years, 11 years before you saw the first wave of refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was here, came here doing research at Georgetown. Um, but, uh, he was sent by, you know, back in the day, um, you know, anyone who kind of was studying overseas often was government sponsored. So he always assumed he'd go back to Vietnam and, um, you know, work with the public health system. And, you know, he really wanted to cure TB and uh, tuberculosis in Vietnam. And while he was doing his postdoc work at Georgetown, you know, it was 1965 is when he started. So, and as you both know, you know, postdoc work and PhD work can take a long time. So um, he didn't quite have the same country to come home to when he was done um, with his research. Um, So he ended up moving to California after D.C. and then living in St. Louis, doing research there, um, which my mom said had the nicest people she had ever met. But if she has to live through one more winter, she was going to move back to Vietnam. Mm. And so they left in St. Louis. Louis. Yeah. 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 And um, moved to California where they had lived doing, he was doing research at UCSD and then he got a gig at UCI. And so UCI was not, um, Irvine was not far from one of the uh, many um, refugee camps all over the country. Um, and Orange County happens to be, um, as we know, like a huge, just about a quarter of a million Vietnamese people in Orange County. So hmm. he was one of the first Vietnamese doctors in California, um, you know, probably possibly in the country, too, just because he came so early for, you know, purposes completely unrelated to Vietnam's political status. How did he yeah. interact with with Vietnamese refugees when they started coming over in the seventies? So he actually did, um, like, created a lot of like ad hoc classrooms in our living room to help doctors who were Vietnamese 
um, who had Vietnamese degrees and who immigrated, he actually worked really hard to get those doctors their U.S. licenses. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so we, I mean, it, like I grew up, we grew up going to, anytime we go to Vietnamese restaurant, like my parents knew like at least 10 people every place we went to because he knew all the doctors and he knew a lot of patients because, you know, he was serving the Vietnamese community. Um, and my mom ended up becoming an immigration lawyer while, um, you know, we were already born. And so between the two of them, they kind of provided a lot of transitional services for a lot of refugees. Mm. So both your parents are these educated, like sort of high status <clears throat> individuals who are who were Vietnamese, who are Vietnamese. Yeah. Um, but here they are, like they find themselves um, providing services and interacting in a professional cap capacity mm. with this incoming refugee population mm. of boat people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my dad kind of forayed into creative writing at one point. And oh, yeah? He, yeah. And only in Vietnamese. And he wrote this book called Boat People. Um, inspired a lot after visiting refugee camps in the 80s in like Hong Kong. Wow. And that's actually where my sister met her husband. He's this French guy who was working in Hong Kong and she met him volunteering at these refugee camps like right, like literally a year before they were closing down. Do you have um, a copy of your dad's book? Oh, God. I mean, you know, my parents have since relocated to Vietnam, actually, mm. the past year. So they live half time in Vietnam. I, I don't, I mean, it's got to be out there. You yeah. know, like three short story books. Yeah. Um, he was like kind of popular. You I should, mean, we should try to find a copy of, of one of these short exactly. stories and have you read a little bit of it and, re, and <laughs> react awesome. to your, to your dad's own words. Yeah. That'd be you know, amazing. I have uh, worked on like a translation of one of them before with the help of my Vietnamese teacher who totally loves my dad's story. Mm -hmm. um, my Vietnamese teacher in Vietnam. So I went to Vietnam for my last year of college for a semester and then I stayed there an extra six months. Um, I it was the first uh, US, official US exchange program in Vietnam with the university, um, I went to Berkeley. Mm. And so they started an exchange program. There was an exchange program that I think Cornell hosted, but they didn't collaborate with the Vietnamese university. It was just like Cornell abroad. Mm -hmm. um, but I, so I ended up being able to live there through school. And um, like I had these stories that I shared that I wanted to try and translate one mm -hmm. with my Vietnamese teacher who like totally ended up loving my dad's stories. <laughs> um, so it was kind of, I mean, it was cool, you know, and I was in Vietnam in the, oh gosh, the ni 1999 and 2000. Mm. So apparently it's changed a lot. It's um, significantly more modernized. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I was there at a, an interesting time, and like my parents visited me and pretty much hated their visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was really painful for them. Um, and there was, we had relatives who still had, I think, a lot of heartbreak and animosity um, that my dad left, you know, mm-hmm. or like he left and didn't come back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really, he didn't leave for political reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, he left for so, like what was? Do you remember the seed of? Um, I mean, how did he end up in a PhD program in the U.S. in the '60s? So, I mean, he was just you know top of his class in Vietnam. He was a doctor and proposed research, doing research in Georgetown. I mean, and kind of won the old-fashioned way, like you know, Piper Grant mm-hmm. stuff like that. And uh, so, when he arrived, oh, sorry, go on. Sorry. So, I mean, he kind of just, you know, got in, like, just really normal ways, right, by, like, posing research and having it get accepted. And then I believe the government paid for a big chunk of him to go. And then, you know, as you guys know, most postdoc stuff is paid for by the school at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like for him to be one of the few Vietnamese faces in the U.S. while there was a war going on? Well, you know, we used to ask him about that, and also, like, what was it like to be a person of color in the 60s, you know? Um, And he was like, you know, I thought it was really weird that there were separate fountains. And This was in St. Louis? Um, Well, in D.C., too. Mm. I mean, you know, D.C. is basically the, like, what does Kennedy say? It's like, Northern charm and southern efficiency in DC, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, DC is there are parts to me that like are very southern, in my opinion. Um, and you know, he was like they basically treated me like like a foreign gifted student, and that you know they they treated like a guest really because he didn't think he was going to stay. You know, he had every intention to return to Vietnam, mm-hmm. um, as did my mom. Um, and so, you know, he didn't really, he also like achieved a lot. So he discovered like a nerve or something in the lungs. And so, you know, it's not, he didn't have like the kind of normal experience for, you know, Maybe anyone, yeah. right? Like it's a pretty rare experience, and he had pretty rare accomplishments. So you know, he was like, yeah, there was some discrimination, but it was all generally pretty clear from my record that I wasn't going to put up with that because I was busy getting pretty big grants. Yeah. I just find it so extraordinary that when you think of Vietnamese Americans in the U.S., um, you know, even even this generation, like there's very little um, separation between refugee boat people, the Vietnam War, and here your father is in this sort of extraordinary, yeah. exceptional category uh, yeah. of difference, and then he finds himself like smack <coughs> dab in in like the incoming influxes of the first wave of boat people coming in the late mm-hmm. 70s the first wave mm-hmm. and then you've got like subsequent waves in the the 80s so i wonder 
I mean, what was it like for him to transition from basically a rarefied position of like a, a grad student mm-hmm. in an elite institution to not only having the face of like a, a Vietnamese person, but then interacting with these waves mm-hmm. of, of Vietnamese boat people? Yeah. Sounds like I he mean, was remarkably supportive, right? If he was helping yeah, Vietnamese I mean, doctors get their license. Oh, for sure, for sure. And he wasn't a grad student. He was a, a scientist, you know? He was oh. already being paid to do research. So, and I think like a lot of people with science, they're so engrossed in the science that they're not really paying a ton of attention to the social implications. Yeah, you know, your dad wasn't I think a social scientist, or he wasn't an activist, or, a, or like a. <laughs> oh no, no, no. <laughs> like he has become like a little like more political in his past twenty years, and I probably, I mean, my family is pretty moderate, if not leaning right. And then I went to Berkeley, and I think that probably says enough. And so you're ultra like, conservative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You voted for Trump, didn't you, Kim? <laughs> and, um, you know, I, it's kind of like funny in his later years, he started to become like more politically aware. Um, at one point, he started working for the public health system in Watts in LA, which is predominantly African American and um, he does now, he's like an expert witness for social security hearings. And so he's always like really eager to talk to me about his cases and show off how liberal he's become. Oh yeah. Um, cause I'm apparently the one that is the high watermark, I guess. <laughs> liberalism. In America. <laughs> Your mother is an immigration lawyer. She worked with Vietnamese boat people. Yeah, she did some, um, she worked. Primarily with Mexicans, because we were in Cal- Southern California during, um, you know, when when Reagan declared amnesty and allowed a lot of folks to get on the pathway to their green cards, regardless of how they came into the country. Um, so she de- definitely had refugee clients. Um, they both of them have volunteered a lot of time for the immigration work of a lot of monks, Buddhist monks and nuns. Mm. Um, but you know, a, a lot of that wave of refugees was uh, my mom had not gotten her law degree quite yet, mm. um, but there's still a lot of trickling in and stuff like that. So, yeah, primarily both their careers as practitioners was. Uh, Mexicans and Vietnamese immigrants. Hmm. Did they see parallels between them? I mean, what was it? Yeah, you know, we used to go to to Mexico a lot, like every other weekend, because for my mom, she was like, you know, this is a lot like Vietnam, like the food being wrapped in banana leaves Hmm. and (laughs) kind of like the market culture and at the, in the 80s and 90s, you know, I don't think they thought they were ever going to be able to go back to the house. Hmm. I see. For well, political reasons. You were born where, Kim? Here. 
here. Yeah, in... so in Orange County, uh, or San Diego, um, I was born in 77, I'm 42, and I'm literally one of the few 42-year-old Vietnamese Americans I know who was born in the U.S. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm a year older sister. than you. And I was, uh-huh. And your, your sister, too? My sister's 51, and she was born in the U.S. Um, because of your parents, like their their yeah. extraordinary situation of being here in the '60s, that's you're right. right. That's yeah. a very rare thing, Kim. Yeah, I'm, I'm so curious about how you ended up hosting your own podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about <laughs> this very specific <laughs> podcast hosted by a like like a second generation mm. woman right. in her forties? Yeah, because, I mean, this is very, very Vietnamese, so. Yeah. So, I uh, lived in New Orleans, which has uh, not a large Vietnamese-American community, but, like, a pretty well-known one. Like, Mm -hmm. the the, you know, it has about 15,000 Vietnamese-American people in the greater New Orleans area. Whereas, like, Boston has, like, 60,000 Vietnamese people just in Boston. Hmm. So there's, there's not a ton of Vietnamese in New Orleans, but there is a very um, closely knit community um, and a community that got a lot of attention after Katrina because they were very much um, self-sufficient in a lot of ways. And so they kind of got in the press a bunch, not by their own will, but just because. Um, and this station called It's New Orleans, which is created by Grant Morris, the producer, um, has a bunch of like New Orleans-centric shows. And I actually asked to die. I thought about this the other day, the after you talked. I was asked to be on their food show. Hmm. <laughs> Do you have a, a, an intense interest in food or something? I mean, like, I eat a lot, and... You know, I'm kind of a chatty person, and mm. so I ended up knowing a lot of food people in New Orleans, one of whom was this husband-wife couple that owned this great little restaurant called Cowbell in New Orleans, and she's like, hey, you want to go to this podcast show with me mm. about food? Uh, and it was hosted by this, like, I think he was like a Unitarian minister uh, who, who wrote this book called The Man Who Ate New Orleans and it was all about him trying a new restaurant every day in New Orleans as like after Katrina, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. So anyway, I was on the show and then Grant's like, hey, we have this show called Win Win. It's about the Vietnamese community in New Orleans. There's a white guy named Steve Wynn, W-I-N-N, and then there is a co-host whose last name was Wynn, like the Vietnamese name, mm-hmm. and he's Vietnamese American, so... I was on that for a little bit, and then the other two hosts kind of faded out, and I'm like, well, I'm not a win. Mm. So, well, I, change the game. It's a little the, awkward. As the dad on the on the mics today, I would like to say I like the, the name win-win. I think that's really fun. Because <laughs> of the dad joke, yeah. <laughs> it, it was very dad jokey. Yeah. Um, we're trying to come up with a pretty solid dad joke riff for, for the title of this, this project we're working on, too. Uh, so um, they changed the name. We changed the name to Vietnola, and 
I mean, basically, I interviewed anyone and everyone who had anything to do with New Orleans and the Vietnamese culture there. So, I mean, we had a lot of Vietnamese Americans on there of all walks of life, like this. We had a Vietnamese UFC fighter on there. Uh, we had a woman, a Vietnamese American woman who blogged about fashion. Um, a Vietnamese American woman who started out in like her in various local restaurants and then got like a James Beard scholarship or John Best scholarship to study at the Culinary Institute in New York. Wow. To like this white academic who wrote about currency in Vietnam. Mm. Um, so we kind of entered like would interview anyone. Um, I had done some work as um, a consultant and nonprofit with um, MCVN Community Development Corporation, which was started from this church that was in the heart of the Vietnamese community, um, and just working with that um, organization kind of tied me to, gave me a lot of links to a lot of people in the community. But I am, I'm not from New Orleans. I just lived there for like, you know, seven years and then two extra years on and off. Um, and I live in Arkansas. Um, there's not that many Vietnamese people. Um, but we do have two Vietnamese restaurants, which is exciting. For Arkansas, um, there's, yeah. There's a Vietnamese community in the Northwest because there was a refugee camp here. Mm. Um, but yeah, so the show was kind of a hobby slash um, passion, and it was fun, you know. What did and, the Vietnamese community make of your show? Um, you know, they liked it because it's not, so there's a lot of, like, they got a lot of press. And I think a lot of people felt like they were taken advantage of. Um, you know, a lot of people would write studies about them, and they felt like people were benefiting from their experience in a mm. kind of weird way. Um, Was there any my, kind of, uh-huh. And my show, like, I really kind of made a point to ask for guests who wanted to be on it. And that it wasn't, it wasn't, people don't like, like, people don't like other people feeling sorry for them. Yeah. They were happy to, they were happy to tout their, like, successes. Yeah, exactly. It was like, I was really trying to celebrate what the Vietnamese community was doing in New Orleans, you know, instead Mm -hmm. of just kind of lock the discussion around... Katrina recovery. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you were you were also kind of showing that the Vietnamese community was incredibly diverse, diverse interests, exactly. socioeconomic backgrounds, even right. in right. a kind of common face of a terrible, terrible hurricane. That the, this community was not the sum total of its stereotypes, um, yeah. but yeah. rather was yeah. right was this incredibly diverse thing. And I think that really speaks to your father and mother's experience too, right? And yeah. this is something that in, in refugee and forced migration studies we, we talk about a lot is like you can you can boil down um, and try to find the quintessential essence of every refugee if you want to, but at its heart every refugee is incredibly different. 
the push factors right. might be similar, like a hurricane slamming into the side or the American military dropping down in Vietnam. Um, yeah. But the choices that people make following that um, are often incredibly diverse depending on their age, their sex, sexuality, their right. socioeconomic background, the experiences they've had in their life. Whether they could cook in Vietnam determines whether they can cook abroad or whether they could drive a car or, right. or whatever, or be a scientist and, and try to combat TB. These skills, right. they're transferable mm -hmm. as your bodies mm -hmm. are transferring. I feel like right. I sounded I really smart like just then. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's Can your white privilege. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I, it, yeah, I mean, I think you put it um, really accurately in that I feel like New Orleans, Vietnamese Americans, we're so tired of being stereotyped, even if that stereotype was good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, you know what I mean? And it was, I think, annoying, you know? And so, I really only pick people that I felt after talking to enough people to feel like, okay, this isn't exploitive. I mean, you know, I never got paid like a penny for that show. So everyone knew I wasn't making any money, you know? So, um, and I say that without complaining, you know, it's totally fun. I learned so much about communication, you know, and I mean, you guys can probably sympathize, you know, as an academic, I'm like excited that like, one of my articles was downloaded and used in a couple, you know what I mean? And then yep, it's like yep. a podcast and like 5,000 people listen to me yammer for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like, whoa, that's like more than any single thing I've ever written, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't so take much to make us happy, does no, it? I'm excited that I have like a big lecture that like claps. Yeah, as <laughs> opposed to like podcasting, it's like you know you get thousands, tens of thousands of listeners, and so that was just really fun to be able to communicate uh, to so many people, and so that's kind of how I ended up doing it. You know, truth be told, my profession now really doesn't touch on the Vietnamese community very much at all. Um, I teach law. Mm -hmm. And I teach a small business clinic, and I also teach them as a normal, you know, lecture course on property. Um, there's not a lot of Vietnamese Americans here, so yeah. it's kind of fun. You know, I actually got contacted because of Vietnam, and she might be someone great for you guys to talk about, to talk to too. Um, she's working on a, a movie they're making of that book, um, Good Sent from a Strange Mountain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're making um, a movie? Yeah. And so, you know, I was supposed to talk to her just cat, and she sounds super interesting. She's Vietnamese-American. Um, but, yeah, the show has just been really fun. And then I told V the ultimate crazy story of reunions that that um, show caused. Um, I don't know if you remember me, but I had a guest on who was referred to me. He was actually Canadian, Vietnamese-Canadian. Uh, Vietnamese um, he was introduced to me by my producer, and he just had a job working at Tulane where his wife was working. He was a spousal hire, as we know how that goes. Mm. Um, so, like, you know, nothing kind of that brought your attention to it. But, yeah, I kind of, you know, I really... I'm like, okay, Grant, whatever, I'll do it, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of like, 
And so we ended up meeting a couple times. We ended up getting along super well, like brother and sister separated at birth and just joked around a lot. And it still got aired and, um, you know, on Facebook and, you know, we were both tagged. And a family friend said to my mom, hey, you know, your daughter interviewed blah, blah, blah. And I think it's my cousin who blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Right. So my mom goes, did you interview someone with the last name Juan? Because your grandpa or no, your uncle was really, really good friends with his grandpa. That's small world. Small world. Yeah. And then I was like, hey, cook, you know, uh, <laughs> is your grandpa like uh, accused of being a spy and was a doctor, you know? <laughs> Because it's like, in That's general, the one. everyone does the right? And he's like, I, I never knew about the spy thing, but I always thought it was weird how he had security surrounding him. <laughs> you know, so he, uh-huh. he kind of learned all this stuff about his family, too, you know? And I was like, I didn't know. And I learned a lot about my uncle that I didn't know because, you know, I never met him because I think he died in Vietnam. Um but yeah, so it's just very funny how big and how small the world is, you know. Isn't that the quintessential like human experience though to to have a, like this this moment where where you encounter somebody that was your neighbor twenty years ago, but you're visiting a country you've never been to before. It's, right, it's, it's very it's, strange. It's chaos theory or, or whatever it is that uh, that Goldblum yeah. goes on and on about in Jurassic Park, right? Um, or like, um, you know, Paul Oster, that writer, he mm-hmm. like writes a lot about coincidence. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was so strange that, you know, two generations above us were really good friends and we naturally became really good friends and ended up having this link. We grew up in separate countries, you know, thousands of miles away from each other. Do you, think, do you think that doing this podcast, Vietnola, kind of helped you explore your own Vietnamese identity? Or, oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, can you, I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, like what, what did you start to appreciate or look differently at? I think, I don't think it's that uncommon to say that my parents' generation, I think most first-generation Vietnamese, they don't want to really talk about the past. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a pretty common experience for us to not really know about what our parents lived through. Mm. Um, you know, there's very much a like survival mentality of like, why harp on the past? Yeah. You know? Forget um, it. And we, yeah. yeah, like move on, you know, and focus on what we have here. And all of us were very driven to succeed in really conventional ways. You know, I mean, I joke, but it's actually, you know, not been a common that a lot of parents put pressure on their kids to succeed and to, you know, in traditional ways. And that actually, you know, to be in non-sciences was really controversial uh, because science was seen as such a, like, safe way for Asians to succeed in. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us were kind of that was the parenting we lived with was and I think a lot of immigrants in general you know there's it's the first generation of like 
okay, make it here, make it here, make it here. And not a lot of interest in talking about the past. Um, so, yeah, for sure, you know, we, and for my parents especially, they're like, we were lucky. I don't want to talk about, I don't want to complain. Yeah. You know, we really, really lucky. There's nothing to talk about. Um, and so I think it started with, like, my sister going to... Um, volunteered at a refugee camp after college and then my other sister went to Vietnam for a year and kind of like hung out because that's my sister um, <laughs> we all have our relatives um, like that yeah you know what I mean I mean you know she's doing really well and she's working sort of and then you know I went to Vietnam for a year after college as well um, but, you know, right after Vietnam, I went to law school and then I was a public defender. I clerk. I kind of just did normal career things. And I think there's not a lot of time to think about these things your parents don't want to talk about. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um yeah, yeah it, it seems to permeate yeah. like your your life choices. Um, this I, I don't know maybe I don't know if you if you've had this experience, but sometimes it feels from the people I've talked to who are our contemporaries, you know, like first and second second generation hitting their thirties and forties, you know, whose parents came over or maybe they were born and brought over when they were very young. This idea of like the ghost. Mm. Uh, refugee like there's a because mm -hmm. by all rights you and I can just live our lives as Americans you know we we intermarry we have careers we have education like there's just like a solidly middle-class background with lots of consuming of like pop culture and yet you know we will like do the the vision quest back to the motherland totally. uh, or major in like asian studies or something <laughs> at berkeley <laughs> and and here you are hosting the 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 vitnola podcast but not in vietnamese but in english yeah. right uh -huh. so yeah. i and I, I would love to hear more about that like you know this idea of like uh, expo or delving into the cultural milieu of Vietnamese New Orleans, but like in, in English yeah. and with right. So what do you think of this idea of like our our this this ghost milieu that we live in the shadow of refugeeness even though we're we're not, you know? Yeah, I mean for me a lot of that became more an element of my life after I lived in Vietnam. Hmm. You know, because I had met a lot of relatives I'd never met before, and the war was not that long ago. And though I think, you know, if you go to Vietnam, people are so resilient and not really all that bitter towards Americans in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, I think Vietnamese people, like, Superstition is really common in Vietnamese culture. I'm not going to say most Vietnamese people are superstitious, but it's not an uncommon kind of cultural element. Can you give us an and example of superstition? Also, I would say pretty much everybody in the world is superstitious. <laughs> That's me. 
Yeah. Well, like, I refuse to close on my house in accordance with, like, some book some old lady my mom talked to said is a bad date. And I'm, like, a very rational person, you know? <laughs> and, like... I was like, no, and like my lender friends who um, like charged me fees again, and I pulled my kind of lawyer talk, like, that's fine. I can find another bank because I am closing ready. You know, I really insisted on not closing on this day. And then what was crazy is that the day after they wanted me to close, the house next door to mine collapsed on my house. Oh, whoa. Yeah. And so my lender laughed. He's like, I am never going to question another time a client asked me to do this. Um, so there was an auspicious was date that you wanted, you insisted on closing? On. Yeah, because yeah. like that book, right, that everyone has. Yes. So you that, became a believer. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. There's like this book of dates of like when it's good to enter contracts, when it's good to have a birthday, mm-hmm. and like, and I, like, made my mom find me the date, you know? Like, mm. that's totally irrational. It is irrational. <laughs> my, um, my, my brother married a very traditional Vietnamese girl. She was born here. Like, we're talking, like, Naples, Florida, not, you know, uh, like, Saigon or anything. And um, they're timing their first child to meet auspicious dates, you oh, know? Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. For prosperity, Brian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we we have we have things like this in the United States with with Protestant white cultures too, right? The really? Friday the Thirteenth is oh. a when a, yeah. my, when my wife and I got married on Friday the Thirteenth, my mother in law told me it was going to be a disastrous day. <laughs> <laughs> you were just playing with you were yeah, you're playing with fire, man. Yeah, <laughs> it just made our marriage but that like, much more exciting, though. So that's good. For Vietnamese, it's like. If you're opening a restaurant, the oven better not face the uh, sink. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's like pretty ver- common yeah. to be part of like any kind of transaction. Uh, that's actually would be kind of a fun thing to teach, come to think of it. Anyhow, um, so, you know, there's definitely like elements of that, I think, in being Vietnamese American. And you know, having lived in Vietnam in the late 90s, for sure you become much more kind of aware of, you know, stories and ghosts and, like, it was always really common after someone died for people to talk about, you know, being incense burned in a certain way and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, and my parents worked a lot like with refugee issues um so it was present in our life but not it was just different you know would you say it informed a lot of like okay so on a scale of one to ten how how deep does this refugee identity go i mean I would never claim to have a refugee identity. I don't think it is respectful to people who did have that experience. And I know how hard, I mean, I'm aware of how hard 
life was for refugees, and so are my parents. And they would never claim to be refugees ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would never complain, you know? I mean, this country has treated my father really well. Mm-hmm. And he always points out, he's like, even in the toughest times in this country, you can change government four times in 16 years without a single weapon being taken, mm-hmm. you know? And he points things out that make me, as like the liberal educator at Berkeley, really conscientious of context, you know, and what it means to have immigrant parents who kind of lost a way of life because of a political situation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're now kind of expats in Vietnam and they're really happy. They, you know, my dad really loves having, being able to reconnect with some relatives. And I think he also, um, you know, he was so driven when he lived here that I think he really appreciates kind of the human interaction he has mm-hmm. that I don't think he, I felt, I think that when he lived here, he just felt a lot of drive, you know, and he lives in California, which by all accounts is a very competitive place to work in, no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he's kind of super all about living in Vietnam, but I'm like, you know, I, I have a very lovely experience living in you know, the American South, you know, I grew up in California, I went to school in New York, and I don't think I could live in either of those two places as an adult. It's not, um, there's not that interpersonal connection that I feel like is easier to have within in how, the American how did your How did your parents um, handle, if there ever was a situation like this where, you know, here they are professionals, they clearly have this status, um, and they're they're working with, refu- they are not refugees, but they're working with refugees. Was there ever any experience where they were mistaken, you know, mm-hmm. with a particular history or legacy that obviously they don't possess? And I mean, did they disavow, like, oh, oh I'm not a refugee, I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's... Uh, I don't think... If anything, like, my dad is very vocal to kind of defend refugees. There was this um, journalist, I think he was a journalist for the OC Register. This is also kind of a funny story. So he was a, and he wrote a big story about the refugee influx and how they were bringing, like, diseases and stuff. Kind of like your typical, Mm -hmm. like, xenophobic article. And he straight up called the journalist and said, I'm a doctor with you know, 15 years research under my belt. You've got it wrong. Mm. The journalist ended up spending a lot of time meeting with him and wrote a different story. And mm. for a long time, we were family friends. This was when I was a baby. Mm. Um, and then the couple got divorced and we, you know, things happen when people get divorced. So we didn't, I guess they didn't keep in touch with them. I ended up becoming really good friends with this girl in high school who ended up being the daughter of that journalist. Oh, another small world. Yeah, like another (laughs) super weird, you know, and so my dad was always really quick to try and educate people about 
you know, refugees and Vietnamese Americans. So I don't think, you know, my dad, he's very, he's a proud person, you know, and mm -hmm. my mom too. And they, they don't let, my dad has never let anyone kind of talk down to him. Mm -hmm. um, the, my kindergarten teacher, this is actually kind of a favorite. My kindergarten teacher told my parents I had a learning disability. Um, and so my mom went to school and pointed at the lady and said, lady, you have a teaching disability. Oh, dang. <laughs> that sounds like From something that I would do. <laughs> my parents can do that. They couldn't read English. So I, I was the one who like signed the report cards. So very different experiences. <laughs> she took us all out of public school the next day. Wow. And we went to the private school up until college. Mm -hmm. um, but like that's my parents, you know, I mean, I don't think I have a learning disability. Like, yeah. oh, I, I did pretty good in school, you know. What, what <laughs> I, find, I find that so striking is that you and I had very different experiences with education. I mean, my parents barely, and you know, this is typical of the people who came over during their cohort. Um, fifth grade educations, both of them. Mm. And um, uh, yeah, like uh, you don't talk back to the teacher. The teacher is an authority figure. And right. um, they were so grateful to have us in school and anything kind of went because most of the time they just, you know, they're not, they don't have that institutional class language. Mm -hmm. um, but education was extremely important. And uh, years, my both my parents, you know, they, they did the whole small business route, uh, nail salons, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh -huh. And um, so when me, as a first-generation, like, uh, a kid, you know, they're a kid, when somebody mistakes me for a nail tech, right, mm -hmm. I, I feel all kinds of things. I feel indignant. I feel uh, angry. You know, my sense of ego is, is bruised there, right, because uh -huh. I... Um, and I, I just find it so fascinating because you're right, like at your age, you're extremely rare in that you were born here. Like that's, mm -hmm. like she says, that's almost unheard of. So Bit of a unicorn. You are the Vietnamese <laughs> unicorn, Kim. So Feel free to put really that on your business tall. card. Yes. <laughs> I'm really tall, so people think we're just a weird family. Hmm. Um, yeah, we're tall Vietnamese who were here since the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not going to tell my dad to listen to this, but, you know, my family has just enough arrogance to help us. Yeah. You know, and I think for sure, like, especially when you move to a place where there's not a lot of Vietnamese people, or like, actually, it was interesting in New Orleans, when I met like longtime New Orleanians and they say, wow, you're so Americanized. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, I would hope so since I was born in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, I guess I don't, I don't know. I, I think what our family has always been a bit of just odd in general and unusual that we're, like, my parents, don't claim the refugee identity 
Um, they feel like Vietnamese Americans, you know. Um, they feel very American in some ways, you know. And so both my sisters live in Paris, and my mom's French actually is excellent. She went to a convent school in Vietnam, hmm. so her French is super good. And so I assume she, they would move there because you know I have nieces and nephews and. Uh, and my mom said, you know, if you're going to live in the West as an immigrant, the U.S. is probably the best place. Hmm. Um, you have much better chance of being treated like an equal as opposed to, you know, Europe. And she's like, there's no way I'm moving to Europe. Hmm. And I was surprised, cause, you know, they lived under French colonial times and you know, my mom's family very much benefited under the French colonial system. My grandpa um, was a big export-import business person. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they have such a strange experience that I guess they are really good. They, they raised us to have pretty thick skin and try and um, just make us focus on our own achievements. Mm. I understand. Great. Well, yeah. I, I think that's that's fantastic, Kim. And um, I. Before we close everything out, though, and, and let you go, I, there's something that we did when we visited this refugee resettlement group in Atlanta that was just kind of quirky and fun. And I'm hoping you'll and you you'll try it out for me, okay? Um, <laughs> it's 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 a quint. It's just I don't, I'm saying quintessential a lot today, but it's 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 just a soundbite kind of thing, right? We asked all of these these refugees and descendants of refugees and family members of refugees to just define what a refugee meant to them. Um, mm -hmm. Would you mind doing that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's heavily informed by the fact that I'm a lawyer and a law professor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. From a legal perspective. Uh, you know, um, one thing I want to say is it's very difficult to get refugee status in this country. Mm. And, you know, when everyone was freaking out about Syrians applying for refugee status, it really angered me because it, it really, you know, for sure I saw a lot of the same, a lot of parallels mm -hmm. to what Vietnamese, America, Vietnamese refugees face, mm -hmm. um, which was ignorance, you know, and a lot of ignorance not only about the Vietnamese experience and the Syrian experience, and, and just as much ignorance about how the system works in this country. Yeah. It can take years before you get in as a refugee. And for many refugees, that means you're stuck in a camp. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you're hanging out, you know, cruising around Walmart giving people coronavirus, you know. It's a very long, intense legal process. And it's way easier to get here as a student. You know, mm -hmm. or as a, under a worker status, if you want to do agricultural work, you know, even in our most anti-immigrant era, you know, in the past five, ten years, we still admit about one million immigrants a year. Because if you drive out of the big city in this country, there is a ton of open space. 
you know? And so I have such heartbreak and anger at how people are treating Syrian refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me, refugee status is a very uh, painful status to enter this country in. It means it has been verified over the span of at least a year, probably a couple, that you have been so persecuted and that you would risk your life and limb because the alternative is not even physical survival in the country you're from. You know, and like I said, I think my... My description of being a refugee is is very much informed by being a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it goes across the board, you know, be, between you know, it, it it was easier for Americans to understand the Vietnamese experience because you know the U.S. was in Vietnam, but that doesn't mean that people who are seeking refugee status from other countries didn't experience as much fear and violence yeah. as the Indian Americans. Definitely. Yeah. So I hope that No, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. And it just it drives home that point that, that refugees are people with diverse backgrounds and experiences. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kim. That was really that was really, really great. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah. And if uh, you do happen to come across your dad's creative <laughs> writing, that would be so amazing. Like, I think that he would get a, a kick out of it. So if, if you, it, no pressure, if you find it, you find it. Um, but yeah, let, let us know. And uh, I'll follow up with you with, a, with an email and um, just a, 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 some points of fact and things like that. So we can clarify it with the podcast. And we will keep yeah. up. Sao em sẽ biết